When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's Bigfoot Collectors Club with Bryce and Michael. I know a ghost story or two. Let's do this. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Bigfoot Collectors Club, the show where we talk to amazing guests about their personal paranormal history and share stories of high strangeness. I'm your host, Michael McMillan. With me always is your other host, Bryce Johnson. And super producer, Riley Bright. It's wet, hot, alien summer all summer long. And boy, oh boy, for our alien summer. For our 125th episode, which I'm going to say is a monumental episode. Wow, a buck and a quarter. I'm so excited because we are (laughs) finally getting to the meat, to the fucking juice. The the, UFO meat. alien (laughs) drip, drip drop, tasty barbecue alien beef of the story that is the roswell incident and today's chapter involves one of my favorite figures from ufology history and i could not think of a better way to mark uh a milestone episode than with the story or the chapter of the story that we're gonna get into today uh so this is a reminder we're today we're doing our part two of roswell if you have not listened to part one you got to go back and listen to that from last week. We'll give you a little bit of a catch up here, but yeah, some catch up for that alien meat. You know what yeah, I'm saying? Yeah. Oh. Uh, but really, listen to that episode first, then come back here. Uh, another note, no guest this week. We're not doing any uh, main guests during the Roswell incident uh, series because we didn't want to hold anyone hostage for so long. And yeah. <laughs> I'm already holding myself hostage reading this stuff. Yeah, if you could see my desk right now, guys. I have three open books. I have a plate of crumbs in front of me. I have like napkins and empty LaCroix cans and a baby Ruth wrapper that I found (laughs) in my used copy of UFO Crash at Roswell, which is disgusting. Posted that on the Instagram <laughs> this week. Uh, I, I'm, I am. I thought I was Fox Mulder last week. This week, I think I'm turning into Stanton Friedman. I'm <laughs> certainly have the beach body of Stanton Friedman going on right now. Uh, Bryce, how are you holding up during this research period? Oh, I'm doing good, man. I I, I love it. I've uh, I've I don't know if I'm as in depth as you, but uh, I've been watching a few extra documentaries, which never seems like homework and. Yeah, man, I'm just I'm enjoying it, man. Uh, I, I love this whole Roswell thing. It's 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 perfect. It's so funny watching these documentaries, Riley. I think you'll appreciate this. I so many of these Roswell docs are from like the '90s, so yes. it's 
doing this weird thing where I'm learning shit, but I'm also getting really nostalgic for the 1990s. <laughs> totally, yep. And yep. I think because we recently did Contact on the other side is our Bigfoot movie club, you know, and then I watched the Roswell movie from the 90s with Kyle McLaughlin and Martin Sheen. We're going to do that uh, as an episode over on the other side as well at patreon.com backslash Bigfoot Collectors Club. So I'm just like really in this weird, I don't know why Roswell just feels very 90s to me i guess you know what is too those documentaries you realize how much they leave out though i mean a lot of these documentaries are like maybe 40 minutes to an hour and a half and they just leave out so many uh details which is why it's so great to cover it uh in in a in a version like what we're doing like a three-part podcast where we can really sort of go in depth into uh into a lot of these details yeah, it's yeah, we're doing like Ken Burns Roswell. Totally. And even then, we're going to leave a lot of stuff out. And here's the other thing that I want to say to our listeners. And by the way, thank you so much for the positive response from part one. You know, yeah. not having a guest felt like taking a risk. Taking a high strangeness story and spreading it across three episodes feels like a big risk. But we're loving it. And and I, I'm so appreciative of the of the positive feedback that we've gotten from everybody. But that being said, like, we're going to get some shit wrong. Uh, Bryce and I were having a conversation uh, just before recording where, you know, one book from 1991 contradicts a book that comes in 1995 by the same authors. Um, There's a lot of shit to get through. Like, I texted Bryce last night. I'm like, I am in the fucking weeds with this Roswell stuff right now. The deeper you get into it the more it pulls you down this is why men lose their families researching this topic (laughs) speaking of getting things wrong we got some really interesting letters about the war of the worlds thing that i thought we should bring up really quick because i didn't know this oh Uh, okay we got got some letters that said um it didn't actually cause widespread panic and that's actually more of how the story's grown over time and i based that on a, a radio lab episode that i'd heard where they went into that whole thing and, and they seem to think that it did, but I guess um, apparently the panic was not as widespread as people tend to believe. There was some, but um, I, I thought that was an interesting correction that someone gave us. Oh, wow. I wonder. That's interesting. I mean, that's always how I remembered hearing it. I Me too. I always remembered hearing about suicides, too. I wonder if that's like a true fact of the of the Roswell read. I mean, the uh, War of the Worlds readings as well, because I always remembered people like uh, went and off themselves or drove off cliffs or something because they were so <laughs> scared. I wonder if any of that's true. I don't know. It seems like maybe it's not. Yeah, but that's a it's a, an interesting correction. Well, you so know thanks. what, listener, thank you for the correction, and we should probably do it as a as a high strangeness episode. We should. I we mean, should why not to put an episode of War of the Worlds? It's yeah. uh it's definitely weird, <laughs> you know what I mean, and uh, it's part and of it UFO seems like the history. Story's still not quite straight either on it, so we should we should dig into it I'm, and figure out what's what's what. Yeah, because uh, you know one of the best comments that I think we got uh, maybe on Instagram from last week is that people are saying, "Oh, I didn't know there was stuff that I didn't know that you guys brought up in this episode about Roswell." And I mean, honestly, I'm learning shit constantly, reading all this stuff and watching all this stuff that I thought I had a pretty good sense of what the story was. Um, and you know, we're turning leaves over constantly and we're just reading what, you know, all the material that's already been published. We're not, this make, you know, really makes me feel like we missed out 
on that period when we could go talk to these old timers before they passed away yeah. and, and, and listen to their stories. Talk to your grandparents, everybody. We yeah. always say on the show, when you are at home and you're bored and you got to hang out with your family, or now when you're on Zoom calls with your family trying to think of stuff to talk about, ask your grandparents for their UFO stories, their ghost stories. Find out about the time the grandpa shot at Bigfoot during a camping trip in 1948. Because um, I did. Because he did. You know he did. You know grandpa, all grandpas have seen Bigfoot at some point. You just gotta, you just gotta get the story out of them. Alright, before we get into part two of Roswell, we have some... All right. You guys have gotten so good at that. We have to go so slow to get it right now. (laughs) Uh, This is from Space.com. Scientists use moon as a mirror to study Earth during lunar eclipse. How about that? Chelsea Goad. Uh, Astronomers use the moon as a mirror to study Earth during a lunar eclipse, simulating how scientists might search for signs of extraterrestrial life. In a recent study, scientists using the NASA European Space Agency Hubble Space Telescope detected ozone in Earth's atmosphere during a lunar eclipse on January 21st, 20th through 21st, 2019. But they did so indirectly, capturing light that bounced off the moon after passing through Earth's atmosphere. Finding ozone is significant because it is a photochemical byproduct of molecular oxygen, which is itself a byproduct of life. Allison Youngblood of the Laboratory for Atmospheric and Space Physics in Boulder, Colorado, lead researcher of Hubble's observation, said in a NASA statement, the study could therefore serve as a proving ground, helping researchers shape their search for signs of life around exoplanets, team members said. One of NASA's major goals is to identify planets that could support life, Youngblood said. But how would we know a habitable planet or an uninhabited planet if we saw one? What would they look like with the tele- techniques that astronomers have at their disposal for characterization? For character- God damn it! I'm a nerd with a stutter! Have at their disposal for characteriz- characterizing the atmospheres of exoplanets. I'm an actor and I can't pronounce the word characterize. <laughs> Still can't do it. That's why it's important to develop models of Earth's spectrum as a template for categorizing atmospheres on extrasolar planets. Ozone also helps protect life on Earth by absorbing damaging ultraviolet radiation. The recent observations mark the first time that a lunar eclipse was captured at ultraviolet wavelengths from a space telescope, the researchers said. So who knew that ozone would help us find uh, extraterrestrial life? Oh, so that was the point. Okay. What part? Of, what part of that didn't you understand? I don't know. All I heard was blah 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 gases, blah 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 moon mirror ozone science, blah blah blah. Dude, they're using the moon the as a mirror to, to find life on other planets. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, that's, Riley, you like so this cool. story? I like that a lot. That's really cool. It's uh, so clever and interesting and just cool. I just like that it's a way of using our atmosphere and our lunar objects as a literally the lunar object to help uh you know search for life there's just seems like there's all these odd amazing ways that we can do it sure we're yeah. what you got love it 
Yeah, another way of looking at things, too. It's very cool. Fantastic. Go science. Go science. And maybe they can find some ghost planets while they're at it. Ooh. Oh, yeah. All right. Uh, last week, we talked about the UFO flap of 1947 very briefly. And I thought to get into the spirit of part two of Roswell today, you know, I was thinking, you know, this is wet, hot alien summer, and we haven't even looked to see what UFO activity has been going on in the past month or two. Yeah. So I thought this would be a fun idea for a brand new segment that I'm calling MUFON UFO Roundup. Yeah. So I went over to the MUFON uh, website. Uh, Bryce, why don't you tell our listeners what MUFON is? Uh, yeah, sure. I think it stands for the Mutual UFO Network. Uh, and it's basically uh, just a network of communities and organizations that uh, coalesce as one to report uh, any sort of UFO sighting or anomalous experience. That's correct. And uh, if you go to their website, you can hit the UFO stalker and it'll show you a map of where everyone is seeing sightings. And some of the stuff, um, you know, it happened six years ago, but they're just reporting it today. But I, I went through and I picked out a couple uh, sightings that happened in the past week. For example, last week, 83, um, there were 83 sightings, which is up 46%. So we're That's seeing incredible. a little bit of an Whoa. active time since our last episode even went up. Here's one from uh, August 10th uh, from Easton, Pennsylvania, uh, which is in the United States. A green and purple trail, uh, an object with a green and purple trail was spotted with a bright white in front of it. Uh, so the person says, while sitting outside talking to a friend, I noticed out on top of my out of the top of my eyes something bright. As I looked up, I first noticed a bright green and purple trail, almost resembling the contrails left by planes. But the colors were extremely bold and bright and very noticeable in the night sky. As I looked at it, two seconds later, it sped up and then just vanished and disappeared out of the sky. Mm. And it flew in a straight line path. Um, so there's just one of, uh, here's one that happened on August uh, 8th. A strange floating UFO high above Paris gas station in Paris, California at 9 a.m. My wife and I were filling up gas a few minutes before 9 a.m. for a road trip to Vegas on Saturday, August 8th. Please wear your masks. 2020, <laughs> when I noticed in the sky a reflective gold round shaped object with a cylinder coming down from the bottom. I immediately told my wife to look up as she was sitting in the car. And we both observed it for a minute or so before I pulled out a phone to start recording it. The timestamp says I started recording at 9 a.m. I watched it float and hover incredibly high up, and then it seemed to be able to move rapidly from side to side and up and down. I lost focus a few times, but eventually was able to get a good shot of it zipping up and down and then to the right before it would disappear for a few moments and then come back into focus on the camera. Hmm. Almost like a housefly, how it moved rapidly. Ooh, that's a cool way to describe it. I filmed it for just over a minute before I got back in the car to start our trip. When I was able to look at the video, I was able to zoom in somewhat to the speckle I had caught and was vaguely able to make out the round top and cylinder shape tube jutting from the bottom of the top. 
I screenshot the close-ups as well. So with some of these, you can even see, of course, it says no photos, videos, or other media provided. So I don't know what happened to this video. But that kind of sounds like the thing that we saw at uh, Contact in the Desert, which we, Riley and I still think is a balloon. Right. Yeah. But that's Paris, uh, Paris, California. I've been there. That's where Desert Days happens. Ooh. It's a, definitely some psychedelic desert. That's where you'd see one. So check this out. This is from August 9th. Uh, When it happened, it was submitted on August 11th. Uh, This is titled, Taken from Bed and Did Something to My Left Eye. Oh, shit. Jesus. I fell asleep on Sunday, August 9th, and I woke up to this extremely bright light shining into my left eye, and something was being done to my left eye. My right eye was somehow held shut, and it went on for what felt like hours. Until finally I woke up in my bed completely blind in my left eye trying to read the clock. And as time went on, my vision started to come back, but there were green spots blocking my vision. And I looked into the sun for, and I, like I had looked into the sun. I was going to say okay. if you did. Okay. Like I had looked into the sun for 10 minutes. And I rubbed it. And after five minutes, my vision came back. But it feels like something is now in my left eye. I feel crazy thinking this, but I can't explain what happened. So let me get this straight. The the girl rubs her eye in bed and sees or, some... Or guy. Okay. I don't know or, if it's a male they, or female. They rub their eye in bed, they see some spots, and then they, they call and contact Mufon? I'm not so sure. Well, it started with a bright light in her left eye, and she felt like her right eye was being closed, held okay. shut. All right. I'm not going to discount it all, I guess. Just saying. I mean, it could have been a, a stroke. I don't know. It's pretty freaky. Yeah. Um, here's one last one from uh, August 8th. Um, Tic Tac shaped, uh, very dark in color. I was grilling burgers and looked up and saw something odd. Asked the wife to come look, and I pulled my phone out to take pictures. It was hard to find in the screen, and I zoomed in and got a few. And then I took a short video of it, too. I turned to ask the wife if she's seen it. She said yes. We looked back where it was, and it was gone. <laughs> Okay, that sounds a lot like my reports, yeah. Yeah, there's a photo of it, too, and it looks a lot like your photos, Bryce. It's just mm. a sort of tic-tac uh, blur uh, hanging out, like, near the cloud line up in the sky. I mean, yeah. it, it definitely looks weird. It's not a plane. Uh, that's it for this first installment of MUFON UFO Roundup. Get in that pan, UFO. <laughs> All right, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back... It's time for part two of Roswell. All right. It's time for the next chapter in the Roswell saga. Are you boys fucking ready for this shit? Yeah. So, so ready. ready. Ugh. All right, guys. Buckle in. Because uh, things are about to get bumpy over Corona, New Mexico. <laughs> When we last left our story, it was early July of 1947 in Roswell, New Mexico. Mac Brazel, a foreman on the Foster Sheep Ranch in Corona, New Mexico, discovered a field of strange metallic debris over the 4th of July weekend and subsequently turned it over to the Roswell Army Airfield in Roswell, had just retracted his story that the wrecked parts came from an alien spacecraft at the behest of the military. Brazel's reaction was a surprise, considering it was the Roswell Army Airfield itself that sent out a press release the day before saying that they were in possession of a flying saucer. Now Mac Brazel was ordered to tow the new official line that what he actually found were pieces of a weather balloon. 
even though the experienced rancher would have recognized one. Even more strange was the fact that Razzle had hinted to KGFL's Frank Joyce that he'd discovered dead alien bodies. That's right. Now in this chapter of our story on Roswell, we're going to take a look at the same course of events, but from the point of view of Major Jesse Marcel Sr., the 509th Bomb Squadron Intelligence Officer, who was ordered by his base commander, Colonel William Blanchard, to report to the Foster Ranch in Corona and collect the debris for the Army. Marcel wouldn't know it at first, but this task would eventually set him up as the perfect fall guy for the Army's cover-up story. Bigfoot Collectors Club presents Roswell, Part 2, The Officer Who Touched Another World. After Brazel was escorted by military police into KGFL and the Roswell Daily Record to retract his story, the crashed flying saucer tail was dismissed and the country moved on. This, after all, was 1947, and trust in the American government was sky high after victory in World War II. So if Uncle Sam said something was a weather balloon, it was a goddamn weather balloon. <laughs> yeah, I don't, know if our, I don't know if our trust in the government is as high today as it was back then, but... Uh... Yeah, and it was, uh, what we failed to mention last week was that even though Brazel, uh, Brazel was not allowed to go home after retracting the story, he was taken back to base and he was held there for another five to six days. They basically kept him for the better part of a week, uh, questioning him, going over the story, uh, who knows what, um, one of his stunt, Bryce, what were you going to say? I was going to say, I mean, you're exactly right. You know, taken is a is a tame word. Abducted and detained would be more like it. I mean, talk about a violation of this man's civil rights. He was denied access to a phone. Uh, they gave him an army physical strip search, questioned and intimidated him for, think about that, five days for turning in uh, something that fell on his ranch. Yeah, and it was so sad, too, because in researching this, Riley, you find out that Brazel's family basically learned about all this in real time on the news. And um, there's I said real time again. So if you're playing a drinking game, that's the cue to take a sip. Um, And one of the things that they were worried about was that no one was taking care of the animals up at the ranch. That was his job. Yeah, absolutely. You know, in fact, Max, Max's son, Paul, he was a Texas rancher. He immediately, after learning his father was detained, came to look after the animals and uh, and found that he couldn't get on the ranch. The, the military police literally kicked him off his father's ranch. You know, and he never mentioned much about the story of, of the Roswell crash, but on his deathbed, he told his nephew, Joe, You know, one thing that always riled me up, even to this day, is every time I tried to get to the main ranch house... To water the horses in all that summer heat, the damn army forced me off the ranch. I tried again the next day and they still threw me off the property. I was sure they did nothing for any of the animals. That's such a bummer. Yeah, it's a bummer note. But it's one of those things that really humanizes the story for me. It really kind of grounds it in reality. And you realize that like, okay, crash UFO aside, like this search and this moment had an impact on people's lives and on the lives of the animals at this ranch. So this it's those little kind of humanizing details that really make, obviously we know something fell, but it makes this all a little bit more believable. More like the severity of it, you know, where they're, they're willing to go to those, those lengths of uh, just uprooting these people's lives. And, you know, that's a, I don't know. 
I was going to say more of dehumanizing from the military than humanizing. Well, yes. Uh, Bastards. Yeah, yeah. Burn. Yeah. Um, and in fact, uh, I believe it, 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 I might be wrong. I think it was Floyd Proctor who was Brazel's neighbor, saw Brazel uh, in town the day that he was uh, being forced to retract his story. And he was talking about how he saw him escorted by MPs and Brazel wouldn't look him in the eye. And then not too long after this whole thing ended, uh, Brazel bought a brand new pickup truck and then he went, he left Corona to go start his own uh, business. Yeah. And there were rumors going around and one of his, uh, his other son, Bill, will deny this, that the army may have even paid him off to keep quiet. And that was one of the things that one of the reasons that he shut up because uh Floyd Proctor's wife, and her first name escapes me, I apologize, she said that, you know, this is a guy who never had two nickels to rub together, and suddenly he's off starting his own business in a brand new truck. Yeah, I mean, you know, that's exactly how they ran it. Rough him up, pay him off, get him out of there. Yeah, they made him an offer he couldn't refuse, you know? Yeah. Sounds, like a, sounds like a mob bargain. You're exactly right. That's exactly what it was, Riley, in a sense. So the Roswell crash... And Jesse Marcel Sr. emerged from the shadows of history 30 years after the events that took place in Roswell. In 1978, Stanton Friedman reignited interest in the phenomenon when he interviewed Marcel, who for the first time ever publicly made the claim that the whole weather balloon story was a cover-up and that what he had and many other officers from the RAA RAAF witnessed back in that strange July of 1947 was from another world. Yeah, I mean, this story was asleep until then, right? I mean, so what happened, Michael? He he made a public statement. What does that mean? Well, so we'll get into this towards the end of this chapter, but basically uh, Stan Friedman came along, ufologist, UFO researcher, you know. RIP. Imagine in the time that passes after Roswell, we go through Project Blue Book and J. Allen and Hynek. We go through yeah. all the stuff with John Keel in the 60s, the Mothman prophecies. You know, now we're in the late 70s, and uh, it's kind of what, like, John Tenney brought up in his recent episode, um, how this is a generational thing. The next generation comes along, and they're looking at all this stuff and going, huh, what's happening to what's ha- what really happened here? And through the Freedom of Information Act and some stuff being declassified, Friedman comes and some other researchers come along you know, bring up, find some memos and old documents that lead them to believe that Roswell's a cover-up. And he goes out to start to find some of these old-timers that were involved. Of course, one of the first guys he goes to is Jesse Marcel Sr., because he's the guy who will learn is the cover boy or the poster boy for this story. (laughs) So Marcel is, at this point in the late 70s, he's got emphysema. He doesn't have long to live. And what, and we'll get into this again, and you'll kind of see why he was, he kept quiet, but he wanted to tell the story. And I think he waited until he was close to dying to say the story. He interviewed, uh, Friedman interviewed on him on camera. He went on in search of, um, yeah. so he started going public with, with his story in the, in the last few years of his life. Well, and one thing a lot of these witnesses had in common, you know, speaking in their older ages and, and, 
you know, as to these deathbed confessions, so many of these guys were afraid of losing their pensions and being able to, you know, care and support for their family. But, you know, having known that their their life was limited now and had a short window, they were like, I want to clear my conscience and I want to clear my good name and speak my truth. And, uh, and who cares the ramifications, you know? Right. And there was witness intimidation involved, allegedly. And these guys were also that was their job. This, you know, Marcel was an intelligence officer. It was his job to keep intelligence top secret if it was top secret. Yeah. So let's rewind. Go back to Sunday, July 6, 1947, the day that Brazel brought a box of debris into Roswell to show Sheriff Wilcox. On, on the recommendation of radio of radio DJ Frank Joyce, Brazel called the RAAF and Colonel William Blanchard, Jesse Marcel Sr., and CIC officer Sheridan Cabot came down to the sheriff's station to take a look at Brazel's discovery. Yeah, Michael and I were talking about this, too. Like, you know, so in the book that we focused on for our research, Witness to Roswell, it was kind of assumed that perhaps Mac had maybe you know, taking this box of debris to the RAAF himself, which I sort of had, was like, that's a little strange, right? To like show up at the front gate of a top secret Army Air Force base and be like, yeah, I got this uh, box of space junk. Uh, can I talk to somebody who can help me out with this? And uh, hey, so- one of those ranch people are back. <laughs> <laughs> what do but, we want me to do with them? But so I guess we we I think Michael and I agreed that probably what most likely happened is that Sheriff Wilcox had called uh, the brass over at RAAF and said, "Hey, I got this feller here. Uh, he's got this stuff. Uh, you guys should come take a look at it." You know. Well, and that's and- what they say happened in UFO Crash at Roswell by Kevin Randall and Donald Schmidt, which is an older book than Witness to Roswell. And these books often contradict themselves, and new information comes to light. So uh, this is one of those where we're like, we're not sure, but we're last week. I think you know. We said he went to the base, but it seems it's more likely they came to him at the sheriff's station. Yeah. So let's assume that brass from the base came to the sheriff's office. Now, Mac probably used the words flying saucer when handing over some of this debris. And you have to imagine that the colonel of this base is looking it over, probably thinking, what on God's green earth is this stuff? You know, because that's how they talked back then. And having really no clue as to what this stuff is or where it could come from. Now, remember, he was the colonel of a base that housed and deployed America's most top secret weapon, the atomic bomb. I was going to say Spider-Man. But oh, that, was, right, right. And with That would have been better. That would have would have worked out a lot better for everyone had it been Spider-Man. Now, and with him are two of his most trusted uh, intelligence officers. One, Major Jesse Marcel, and two, Captain Sheridan Cabot. And who better to get to the bottom of whatever this stuff was? Jesse was probably was the head of intelligence at Roswell, probably to see if it was one of ours. And Captain Sheridan Cabot, who was part of the CIC, which was the Central Intelligence Corps, uh, now this was before the CIA, to see if it was one of theirs, meaning the Russians. And these guys, you have to keep in mind, Riley, that Blanchard, he's one of the guys who helped plan the nuclear attack on Japan. Wow. Like the 509th Bomb Squadron, these guys in Roswell, that these are all, all these three officers are currently working for and with, they're the bomb squadron that dropped the bomb on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Yeah. Like, so these guys were 
in the shit. They are like part of history. And it just blows my mind to think that if this was a flying saucer from another planet that crashed out there in Corona, that it fell into the hands of the guys who dropped the bomb in Japan. It's a crazy connection. Fucking insane, right? So, so weird. Yeah. Um, so whatever Blanchard thought of what he saw that Sunday afternoon, he was compelled to order Marcel and Cavett to follow Brazel back up to the ranch and collect more samples. The debris Brazel brought into the station was meanwhile locked up in evidence at the sheriff's station until it was later confiscated by Blanchard uh, after they decided it was mm, probably best kept at the base. <laughs> so again, like like uh, like Bryce said, Blanchard's primary concern at this point on the six is this is probably Russian and we need to get a hold of it. Mm-hmm. So Brazel, Marcel, and Cavett they arrive at the ranch at dusk and it's getting. It was getting too dark to examine the debris field. So they crash in Brazel's tiny cabin for the night, eating those cold beans, chomping on some crackers. Brazel had carried a three-foot-long slab, if we can even call it that. It was so thin. A piece of wreckage back to his modest dwelling earlier that weekend. And with not much else to do, Marcel and Cavett tested the piece for radiation and found that there was none. Not much else to do. Well, hey, we got nothing to do. Should we take a look at this thing? Yeah, I mean, the, it's I guess that's remember. why we're here. <laughs> you have to remember, no electricity, no phone line. They're just sitting in this little Heinz house, this tiny little cabin, uh, uh, twiddling their thumbs. And But they've got a piece of UFO there. They might as well take a look at it. I love that my intelligence officers are even country bumpkins. Well, <laughs> we got this here flying saucer stuff. Let's test her for radiation. It's a BCC staple. All of our witnesses are country bumpkins. <laughs> so, unable to identify this strange metal, the officers tucked in for the night and waited to see what tomorrow would bring. It's like Christmas. <laughs> Christmas for army men. <laughs> Maybe we'll find an alien in our stocking this year. Um, and this is another random point I'm just going to bring up for those of you who are hardcore Roswell uh, researchers listening to this. In some of these stories, there was a third a uh, CIC officer, a subordinate of um, Cavett's with them. I, I can't find where he fits into the story or not. Mm. So for, for the sake of our story, we're just saying it's Marcel and Cavett with Brazel. Yeah. At any rate, at the crack of dawn on Monday, July 7th, Brazel led Marcel and Sheridan Cavett through the rough terrain of the ranch to the debris field he had discovered on July 4th. Or third. Uh, who knows? This timeline's so wild. <laughs> Years later, Marcel would tell In Search Of that the debris field was so remote that they never would have found it had it not been for Brazel's guidance. Right. Again, just to, just remember that this is out in the middle of fucking nowhere. Yeah, apparently the wind was blowing pretty hard that day, and Marcel and Cavett could see flecks of the lightweight material fluttering in the breeze like ash. Now, Jesse Marcel described the metal, or what looked like metal, to be as thin as the foil wrapper in a cigarette pack. Think about that if you're a smoker, and if you are, please give me a cigarette. Most of the debris pieces were as tiny shattered glass, and because the mysterious metal didn't reflect the sun, which is an odd property, Marcel and Cavett could see that it would be a tedious task to collect everything. Yep, and they saw what Brazel brought in, those 
long eye beams with the strange uh, symbols on it. These metal-looking sheets that were as thin as newspaper but couldn't be bent. I want to um, talk foil-like about metal that yes. could be crumpled up and sometimes talked about looking almost liquid in your hand, but then would quickly reform to its like original state. Yeah, you called it T2 material, Terminator 2, <laughs> the T1000, yeah. T2000. I mean, that's totally what it is, right? No, it's totally. Just, but it, I want to talk about this for a second. And, and, you know, I'm allowing for conjecture from both you guys. If this material that is, you know, paper thin as the foil on a cigarette pack, and it was from outer space, what could that material have been? Do you guys think that was part of the outer shell or perhaps some of the interior or, you know, what do you guys think? Yeah, maybe some kind of like heat shielding or something, like something to do with, um, you know, being in the atmosphere. At least that's what it, it sounds like compared to like the materials that we have that I would think of. Yeah, or like something in, you know, encasing the gravitational engine or whatever they're using to fly this craft around. But, but Bryce, this is the thing. I don't know if you've thought about this, but this is the thing that every time I get into this story and not just researching it now, but and I still haven't found a good answer, which is. If this UFO is made of indestructible materials, then how the fuck did it explode when struck by lightning? <laughs> like, totally. how did it? Yeah. It's it's like the whole uh, you know bad joke of like, why don't they build the plane out of black box material? It's like yeah. be, this this no, I you don't tra- you travel a million miles and you're struck by lightning. Give me a fucking break. But if these guys can't <laughs> is, cut yeah. this shit, if they can't burn it, then how the fuck did it explode? But it's often led me to think that perhaps this was an intended crash by the, let's call them the visitors. You know, maybe they wanted us to have these materials. Maybe they wanted to die in that hot desert. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> well, well, I you- don't know. It, 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 isn't it so convenient, though, that this happens right at the doorstep of the 509th, right at the age of ato- – right at the atomic age and and just – Right when their materials look something like a, a radar target and, and old weather balloon materials. And it's just there's so many strange conveniences and contradictions. Well, okay, let's Drives talk about nuts. this. Let's talk about that. You brought up this word convenient last week, and I've been thinking about it. What do you mean by convenient? Do you mean coincidental? Coincidental, or, yeah. It's like, you know, like super coincidence. It does, to me, I guess I have a problem that uh, this memory metal is thin as cigarette foil uh, you know, the foil in a cigarette pack. And yet the same time, you know, these radar targets are made from like basically aluminum foil. How the, it's, it's like so convenient that these materials are pretty much exactly like only one you can fold up and, and it throw it in the air and it, you know, goes back to its original form. It's just, well, this, yeah, it's wild. And it kind of goes into the, well, one, one, uh, the skeptic would say it's because it was the same material as the, as the right. radar stuff. Right, of course. Uh, doesn't explain why you can burn, bend it or whatever. But, uh, but the other thing is it kind of goes back to uh, when we, we were reviewing uh passport to Magonia um, on the other side, like perhaps it's one of those things where, this interdimensional entity, these the aliens, yes. are looking at what we're putting up in the air and going, oh, okay, this is what they think flying stuff looks like. So why don't we form a craft that looks like their flying materials? Now you're talking. And, and we'll show up in that. You know what I mean? Because fucking Louis. I love this. 
Because there's even stuff that they described finding in the field that looked like wood, but wasn't wood. And these weather balloons had wood, wooden, you know, I-beams on yeah, them. No, now so, you're talking. So we so often say that, you know, this phenomenon uses the uh, the person's consciousness to sort of mimic a, an objective reality that they might be able to understand. Perhaps... You know, when this, whatever this craft was physically manifested, perhaps it too was mimicking something just outside of our technological capabilities. Right. Something that we would understand. Right. And something that may not be threatening. Because if they came as like a fucking, you know, German, you know, bomb bomber, then that's very threatening. But if they come in the appearance of like, look, we're just made out of the things that kites are made out of, like we're less likely to shoot it down. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, despite the fact there are theories that, that the army was shooting these things down with radar guns. And that's, that's like a whole other tangent that we're not going to get into. We can't, we can't, we got to stay on course. (laughs) Oh my God. So, so, okay. So Cavett and Marcel are looking around. They're realizing there's too much fucking debris to pick up here because remember we're talking, you know, two or three football fields wide and a mile long. Uh, but what did they do, Bryce? They basically, they loaded up two vehicles worth of material. And around noon, Cavett drives back to Roswell, uh, where he presumably ships some of this stuff to his superiors in Washington, D.C. for examination. Now, you have to remember, Cavett was part of the Counterintelligence Corps, uh, which was predates the CIA. But he also reports to Blanchard the size of the debris the debris field. And so because of that, that afternoon, dozens of officers and MPs were sent to the ranch to assist with a cleanup. They had to cordon off the area, lock it down from prying eyes who had caught rumors of a crashed vessel from another world. Now the army would spend the next week collecting each and every tiny little sample they could find from the desert floor. That's right. And you hear stories of these uh the witnesses saying that in some of these old army guys that they were lined up shoulder to shoulder in a line just marching along the desert floor sometimes on their hands and knees just picking up what they were told anything that doesn't look like it belongs yeah they were each given little burlap sacks and and they collected the debris and they would all deposit it back into a wheelbarrow now we've gone from uh army man christmas to army man halloween (laughs) (laughs) filling up their sacks pieces of ufo yeah has any of this material leaked like has has any of it come come out or well riley question now that's a big question we're gonna get into that a little bit later in this episode but here's the thing the the brazel family would say that after the army had cleared out and and again remember that they not only went up to the ranch, but they also went around to all those rancher families That's right. knocking on doors and confiscating any piece that they could find. More than just They're, knocking on doors, prying up floorboards, cutting through feed bags. I mean, they literally tore houses apart. They tore families apart, God damn it! And they, But they... Uh, there's always rumors, Riley, that some of this um, material had uh, been kept secret and has been held in possession, but it's never truly turned up. You know I mean, let's I mean? talk about it, Michael. Is this some of the material that maybe people are referring to nowadays in those New York Times articles? And Well, possibly, and we'll, we're going to get to that at the end okay. of this episode. But gotcha. anyway, so... F- 
there, there's there's just a shit ton of this stuff. And by the end of that day, there was still a football field size left to collect. And uh, also, we have to remember, this is now on the 6th or the 7th. This is, yeah, Monday, Monday July 7th. At this point, Brazel's back down in Roswell talking to Walt Whitmore, the owner of KGFL, and he's about to be taken into military custody. So as we also discussed in part one, there were three crash sites, allegedly. The debris field, where we've been spending most of our time. A second possible site, where a body or two had been ejected from the craft mm-hmm. that was located about two and a half miles from the debris field. And then the final resting place of the hole or the cockpit of the craft, 30 to 40 miles away, right. which is where the rest of the alien bodies were supposed to have been found, sprawled across the rocky terrain. Yep. Now, who exactly was the first to discover the cockpit of the craft still remains a a bit of a mystery as far as we can tell. In the original Unsolved Mysteries series, it was claimed that the main cabin of the saucer and four beings, one of whom was still alive, was stumbled upon by a man by the name of E.L. Barney Barnett who is depicted looking a, a lot like Uncle Traveling Matt from Fraggle Rock. For <laughs> our listeners who are old enough Love to remember him. him. Okay, Just good. Hiking in the desert with, like, one of those safari hats on and a backpack. I, I can't stop imagining him as a puppet now. <laughs> he he kind of, the actor who played him kind of looked like one. So the story of Barnett, of Barney Barnett, a civil engineer from Socorro, New Mexico. Ah, right. Uh, nice little synchronicity there. The Lonnie Zamora sighting took place in Socorro. That's right. was included in the first major book on Roswell titled The Roswell Incident by Charles Burlitz and William L. Moore. And it basically goes like this. G.L. Barney Barnett was wandering the plains of St. Augustine doing survey work on irrigation systems for the ranches when on Tuesday, July 8th, he stumbled upon a crashed saucer and three to four alien bodies. Shortly after, Barnett's arrival on the scene, a group of archaeologists from a nearby college wandered up and they too saw the wreckage and bodies. According to Barnett, the bodies were small, skinny humanoid creatures with bald pear-shaped heads and wore silver jumpsuits that had no buttons or zippers. Shortly after that, the army pulls up and a red-headed commander quickly closes down the site and bullies everyone into keeping their mouths shut. So the timeline of Barnett's story and the location, the plains of St. Augustine, which is almost 140 miles away from Corona, the they don't really add up. So we're going to take some artistic liberty here and say if Barnett and a bunch of college kids did find a crash UFO in July of 1947, there's a pretty good chance it's not the one we're talking about. What? Instead, it's probably far more likely that the main section of the craft was discovered by the Army as it was doing flyovers of the ranch during the cleanup on Tuesday, July 8th. Michael, are you postulating that there might have possibly been a separate alternate crash i'm not postulating that stanton friedman is postulating that i went started to go down a whole other rabbit hole with barney Barney. there are some people who claim that 
three UFOs crashed uh, wow. that July out in the desert. Uh, I, that's like, I, I started going down that route and I was like, you have to get back to Jesse Marcel. <laughs> turn around. Do not go down this rabbit hole. But get you know back. what? That vibes with a lot of like, maybe of what I'm thinking, like perhaps if there was like, let's say three separate alternate crashes, then this, then this was an intended event. Maybe, or maybe our army was shooting down flying saucers and not telling anybody about yeah. it. Now, mm-hmm. you know, and the other thing is like also that story of like uh, a surveyor shows up just as, just as, you know, at the same moment that like a group of college kids show up. There's no record of like an archaeologist being out there. And Barnett's wife also kept a really like, a uh, really good journal of their day-to-day lives and they can't place Barnett in this location on that date. So it's all a little, he said, she said, but it, there were people in the town go, from Roswell going up to the ranch to look for shit. But this seems a little too, uh, as Bryce would say, a little too convenient for me. Um, now we know that Marcel obviously saw the debris field. That's where he and Cabot are collecting all this stuff. But whether Marcel saw the second site, which supposedly had a couple bodies, also known as the D. Proctor body site, is anybody's guess. The Proctor body site was named after D. Proctor, the boy who accompanied Brazel when he discovered the wreckage on July 3rd or 4th, and who was allegedly so disturbed by what he saw that he never publicly spoke about it his entire life. Yeah. Yeah, being so disturbed by what you saw, you have to assume that it wasn't just metallic debris, but actually alien bodies. He mentioned something very cryptic cryptic to his mother, and that's about it, Mm. (laughs) you know? Mm. Uh, And Bryce, I have to mention, you so vividly imagined this scenario of Mac and... Uh, D stumbling upon the bodies in that original watercolor painting that uh, entitled Let's See the Aliens. Thank you so much, Michael. Uh, available on our Instagram page at Bigfoot Collectors Club. And there's more paintings coming. Excellent. Excellent. So there's no evidence that um, m- there's definitely no evidence that Marcel or Mac Brazel or D Proctor for that matter, anybody uh, from this crew ever made it as far as the third crash site where the supposed cockpit laid. Right, but let's assume that they did see that second site where they saw the bodies. Now, although well, Marcel... I'm saying we can't assume. That's my whole point. We <laughs> can't. Saying, but I want to say, say let's assume. Well, Bryce, Marcel never publicly mentioned seeing bodies. No, that's right. Even his son, Jesse Marcel Jr., maintains that his father never spoke to him about bodies, but it would stand to reason that if Brazel had seen alien bodies at the second crash site, only a mere two and a half miles from the debris field, he would have showed them to Marcel and Cavett. Perhaps both Marcel and his son, Jesse Jr., kept it a secret for their entire lives for reasons unknown. So the only evidence for Marcel seeing bodies comes from extended family members. Well, there you go. A cousin. Well, yeah, but extended family. I have a few family members that like <laughs> what did they, they don't know anything about my life and they never will. Uh so there's a woman by the name of Sue Marcel Methane, and I'm not sure Methane, and I'm not sure how she's related. I think she's a second or third cousin. Okay. And she told Tom Carey and Donald R. Schmidt when they were writing Witness to Roswell that uh, that Jesse had once told her at a family gathering uh, that the aliens were white powdery figures. Hmm. This is not long before he died in 1986. 
And then another cousin, Nelson Marcel, told the Huma Courier in 1998 that Jesse Sr. had seen, quote unquote, pygmy bodies among the debris, possibly referring to the second crash site. Well, there's two people describing it. And then you have what uh, Mac told Frank Joyce. They weren't green. I don't know. Sort of all checks out. Regardless, Marcel observed the cleanup of the debris until the wee hours of Tuesday, July 8th, after which he drove home to Roswell with a box of debris in his trunk. Now it was around 2 a.m. when he burst into his house, woke up his wife, V, and their son, Jesse Jr. Now this His is wife's that- name is V or Vi. Probably Vi. Viad. But her real name's Viald. Her right, full name's right. Viald, which is Viald. just like maybe he's married to an alien and he doesn't even know. But this is that scene where I always could so vividly imagine it in my head where Jesse, well, you know, comes because, in. Because right? all I picture is you bursting through your door. Well, basically, yes. <laughs> yes waking exactly. up Don and the kids. Yeah. Everybody like, get up. Get up. Check out this shit. That's from a UFO right on your kitchen floor. And that's apparently exactly uh, maybe what happened. Jesse gets out all the materials on the kitchen floor to show his family. He even gives his son a piece of this memory medal uh, as a keepsake. Yeah, and Jesse Marcel Jr., he talked for years afterwards, and he's now since passed away, but he vividly remembers his dad coming in, getting everybody up, just jumping all this shit all over the kitchen floor, be like, look, look at this. I crumple it up and then it just reforms. Look, I can't scratch it. I can't cut it. I can't burn it. As like Vi's like, honey, honey, calm down, calm down. (laughs) I am definitely picturing Bryce in this scenario. This is great. Yeah, this is my, I think this might be my favorite part of the whole story. Again, it's just one of those humanizing moments and we get, you know, a son, the first like, you know, real secondhand witness comes is is in this part of the story with a guy being like, yeah, my dad came in and he showed me all this stuff. I totally remember it. Um, So around 3 a.m., Marcel and Cavett go back to the base and examine the materials that Marcel brought back from the ranch. According to Marcel, years later, the two men tried taking a sledgehammer to one of the largest pieces of debris, which was about two foot long, and they found they could not make a dent in it. So picture these guys, you know, they are on no sleep. They are guzzling pots of coffee. They're smoking, like chain smoking. They're like out behind one of the like where, you know, uh, like hangers. And they're just taking swings at this piece of crap. Now you hit it. it. Go ahead. Get her to hit it. Go on. You hit it now. (laughs) A morning briefing was held at 7.30 a.m. with Colonel Blanchard, Marcel Cavett, and a small group of men, including CIC officer Louis Rickett, who reported to Cavett and would later claim to not only be a witness to the debris field, but the craft itself. Mm. Blanchard's biggest concern was controlling the crash site. It was remote and it was hard to find, but as we mentioned... The word was already flying around town that something had crashed up north. Blanchard ordered more men and MPs to the ranch to finish cleanup and collection and keep the area on lockdown. He also ordered flyovers to survey the area. And I think it's one of those flyovers that leads to the discovery of the third crash site, the main hole, which will be later this this day or maybe mid-morning. 
Marcel was assigned to bring the debris to Fort Worth and meet with Blanchard's commanding officer, Brigadier General Ron Ramey, who would then send the materials to Wright Air Air Base in Ohio for examination. And I just want to mention this real quick because this came up earlier with Cavett. Cavett's, uh, Cavett's, uh, his higher command was based out of Kirtland, Albuquerque. Uh Blanchard wanted his commander to have this materials. So, So that's why he assigned the job to Marcel instead of Cavett to take it to take it to him. Yeah. Cavett's role was really counterintelligence at the 509th. So anybody spying in and around uh, this atomic unit, he would report straight back to Washington. And so it's not out of the realm of possibility that if Cavett thought this material was otherworldly, that it went right up the chain of command, possibly to even President Truman well, himself. That had already had that for sure happened, you know, but in terms of the materials itself, you know, the 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 Schmidt and Randall think that he already sent his stuff ahead. Gotcha. But uh, Blanchard wanted to make sure that his superior Ramey got a hold of the material, and it just they weren't completely um, that his orders weren't overrun. Yeah. So he made sure to slip some of this stuff to his higher his his high command, and he had to use Marcel to do that. He couldn't use Cavett to do that because well, Cavett didn't ultimately answer to to Ramey. Just like today, there's a lot of infighting between military right. branches and units. You know, well, and it's just there's a lot of bureaucracy. There's a lot of people who want to claim credit for this stuff. Yeah, and and again, you have to remember, even if they're not making the jump to this is alien tech, if this stuff is Russian or foreign made, that's just as fucking important. You know yeah. what I mean? Yep. Um. So why don't you talk about because this stuff was supposedly going to be sent to Wright Air Base. What was Wright Air Base? Right? Sure. So Wright Air Base was the best equipped Army Air Base in the country. Located just east of Dayton, Ohio, Wright Base was home to the Air Technical Intelligence Center, which would later become the Foreign Technology Division. Hmm? Now, in the fall of 1942, the first... Again, could just be another country. In 1942, the first 12 Air Force officers to receive air technical intelligence training in, guess what, field collection, were assigned to Wright Field for training in the technical aspects of crash intelligence. And and just to give you some idea, an entire V-1 flying bomb was reverse-engineered right there at Wright Base, while the post-war Operation Paperclip brought German scientists and technicians to Wright Field as well. So this is the place, in other words, the perfect place to bring a flying saucer from outer space. So, um, yeah, and Marcel is headed out to Fort Worth on a B-29 called the Straight Flush, which I just think is pretty cool. Love that, yeah. Um, after that meeting, Blanchard, perhaps in an attempt to squash public uh, attempts to scour the ranch, gave Lieutenant Walter G. Hout, who's one of my favorite characters in the story, by the way, a press release to distribute to the local media, which would go on to be reported in 30 afternoon papers. The release read, The many rumors regarding the flying disc became a reality yesterday when the intelligence office of the 509th Bond Group of the 8th Air Force Roswell Army Airfield was fortunate enough to gain possession of a disc through the cooperation of one of the local ranchers and the sheriff's office at Chavez County. The flying object landed on a ranch near Roswell sometime last week. Not having phone facilities, the rancher stored the disc until such a time he was able to contact the sheriffs, who in turn notified Major Jesse A. Marcel of the 509th Bomb Group Intelligence Office. 
voice is it's so like good. Bruce. Slowly becoming like a Brooklyn grandmother. <laughs> Don't forget oh, wow. to eat your peppers. <laughs> That's great. You're not done, Bryce. Oh, action was immediately taken and the disc was picked up at the ranch's home. It was inspected at Roswell Army Airfield and subsequently loaned by Major Marcel to higher headquarters. So Blanchard and Hout, they had a really close relationship. Blanchard was like a father figure to Walter Hout. And he had, well, Hout had come up uh, underneath uh, Blanchard during World War II. He was part of all the atomic testing, and he really, really liked this guy. He, called, he would call Blanchard the old man. So when he was handed this press release, he's like, okay, if the old man wants us to go out, it's going to go out. And one of the things... When we go, why did he? Yeah. Why did he give this press release? Well, first of all, he was base commander, so he got to call the shots on the base. Blanchard. He has the authority. He has the authority because yeah. it's something that's happening at the base. And according to Hout, Blanchard was really involved with the community and really wanted the Roswell community to. He wanted a bit of transparency of what was going on at the base it's hard to imagine that today but i know well and the other thing the other thing that uh blanchard i think this was a strategic move by saying heath because if you if you read the press release it's all past tense they've recovered it it's already here right it was a way of saying no 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 don't worry there's nothing up at the ranch for anyone to see Right, We've so got keeping, a fl- keeping keep, people at bay, keeping people at bay, and saying, "Don't worry, you're old, the old man's got it. We're taking a look at it. We've got a flying disc, and we'll report. You know, we're we're letting you know about it." But it was really to keep people from going up there and looking for themselves, so to discourage scalpers going up there to collect pieces of. Can metal. you imagine President Harry S. Truman's face when he read that headline? probably slammed his fist down on his desk and said, I want fucking heads to roll. Well, the headline hadn't come out quite yet, and, and they there was an attempt that we'll get to to stop it. Uh, so Tuesday, July 8th was a very busy day, and what happened next seemed to happen all at once. Around 11 a.m., Howitt went to town and personally hand-delivered the release to KGFL and the Roswell Daily Record. Howitt was the P... PR guy for the base and he knew all of these guys and tried not to play favorites. He'd always get shit if he visited the newspaper before the radio station and vice versa. The the press release gets picked up and goes out nationwide. Now not only the town but the world was starting to buzz with news of a crashed flying saucer. Meanwhile back up at the ranch the third crash site the mother load had been discovered. By midday, a giant truck called a low boy was hauling a large egg-shaped object covered in a tarp down Main Street towards the airfield. Think about that for a second, what Michael just said. A low boy, a large truck hauling an egg-shaped object. Rubber ducky, we got ourselves a convoy here. Now, I just want to read from uh, Witness to Roswell about a couple of kids who might have seen what was under that tarp. Richard Talbert, a Roswell Daily Record paperboy in the summer of 47, recalled for us a day in early 47 when he had just picked up his batch of the record. It was somewhere between 3 p.m. and 3.30. As near as Talbert could recall, he was, playing his, he was plying his trade in the vicinity of the Roswell Daily Record at 4th and Main uh, when heading downtown 
uh, when he looked up and he saw something that he had never seen before in his young life. Heading south down Main Street was a military convoy composed of one large 18-wheel low boy or flatbed trailer protected by an escort of jeeps in front of and behind it, each carrying a contingent of armed MPs. But it was the trailer, or what was on it, that really caught Talbert's attention that day. Quote, The low boy had a tarp on it and there was something under the tarp. Whatever was under there appeared to be oval-shaped. I don't recall how I did it, but I was able to get a quick look under the tarp. I think it must have not been securely tied down on one end, or it just came loose and it flapped up briefly as it went past me. Anyway, I saw a silver, oval-shaped something that was approximately 4 to 5 feet wide by about 12 feet long and 5 to 7 feet high. It had a dome on it, but it was damaged because it was cut off at one end. Bob Rich was also a paperboy that summer and saw the convoy pass right through the center of town that day. Maybe we should have titled this episode, What the Paperboys Saw. (laughs) (laughs) So, Riley, calls start flooding into the base asking questions about the crash saucer. Blanchard starts to freak out and he's asking how to do something about all the phones ringing. And how it's like, well, what do you want me to do? The The news is already out there. Um. <laughs> yeah. Now, around the same time, Jesse Marcel Sr., he arrived in Fort Worth with his collection of debris and met with General Ronald Ramey. Now, I want you to picture this because the trap was set and Marcel walked right into it. Imagine Ramey. Oh, there he is. Jesse, come on in here. Oh, you brought your box of debris. Oh, let me take it. Oh, that is strange stuff. Why don't you you set it down right on that chair right there? And hey, I got my map here in my back office. Do you mind showing me where you think this crash went down? And Jesse's probably like, uh, yeah, yeah, okay. And he sets the box down. He walks to Ramey's office. Uh, Here's my map. Now Now just point out on my map here where you think it went down. He does that, right? And as he comes back to where his box is, guess what? It's gone. Instead of it being there is now some other box with fucking material of a weather balloon. There's some, like, aluminum foil in there. There's some balsa wood, some scotch tape, the old switcheroo. Can you imagine how duped he must have felt? Wow, that's wild. Back at Roswell, the flying saucer story made the front page news in the Roswell Daily Record, which was the afternoon paper. And it went like this. The intelligence office of the 509th Bombardment Group at Roswell Army Airfield announced at noon today that the field has come into possession of a flying saucer. According to information released by the department over authority of Major J.A. Marcel, intelligence officer, the disc was removed on a ranch in the Roswell vicinity after an unidentified rancher had had notified Sheriff George Wilcox here that he had found the instrument on his premises. Major Marcel and a detail from his department went to the ranch and discovered the disc. It was stated. After the intelligence officer here had inspected the instrument, it was flown to higher headquarters. I want us to have a conversation in those voices. <laughs> I was thinking the same thing. Beep, 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 beep. Now here, do you think it might have been an ultra-terrestrial, Michael? Uh, please come by, reply. Ultra-terrestrials won't be discovered until the 1960s. <laughs> so this is this thing where uh, the cat's coming out of the bag. And, and last week we talked about how news and radio stations and uh, the Associated Press were being shut down with the story on the FCC yeah. by the by the FCC. And I think the big thing that they were trying to prevent 
Because look, the news was already coming out, but the big thing that they were trying to prevent from getting out is that this debris was going to leave Fort Worth and go to Wright-Patterson. Mm-hmm. That was That's where they wanted this story to end. That's the big goal here. Okay, they've already said they found a flying saucer. We'll fix that. What we need the public to ignore and forget and believe won't happen is that this shit's going to go to right, right base. And in fact, Ramey had called Blanchard and or Blanchard, one of the two, had decided perhaps when all these phones are ringing off the off the hook, uh, we got to stop. Let's 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 see if the Roswell Daily Record can stop that story from running. And how called the Roswell Daily Record and said, hey, hey, that press release I gave you, we got to nix that story. And the Daily Record went, sorry, the paper, the afternoon paper's already gone to print. So that's the only reason that this story went to print and then was picked up in other papers. Hey, if they can pick up all these small, tiny metallic debris, why can't they go and pick up every newspaper, too? <laughs> that's true. Go around to every house. Yes. <laughs> Two but you know what? Right, Johnson. It, it ultimately didn't matter, Bryce, because yeah. the story was already dead. Right. Because what happened back in Fort Worth? Well, Ramey quickly calls for a news briefing from his office and making a public statement that what was discovered was not a flying saucer, but in fact, a simple weather balloon. And a local photographer was brought in and bewildered Marcel was forced to take a photo posing with that cheap materials and not allowed to make a statement to the press. So you remember that material that he switched him with? And, and then now Ramey's like, now, now, why don't you go on and, and take a picture with that stuff that you that you mistaked as a flying saucer there, Jesse? Just right over there, take a couple photos. Yeah, he makes the guy sit down with what looks like a fucking kite and take a picture <laughs> of it. And this is supposed to be the material that these experienced men from the 509th Bomb Squadron were unable to recognize. <laughs> yeah. Now, you know, something interesting and what I think is so damning of Ronald Ramey and his cover up is that the Washington Post reported that Ramey informed the Pentagon press office that the object was in his office. And as a matter of fact, I'm looking at it right now and I can tell that it's a weather balloon. But you know what? It hadn't even arrived yet. In other words, Jesse Marcel hadn't even got off the plane uh, from Roswell to Fort Worth yet. And Ramey's already uh, sending out telegrams to newspaper agencies saying, I'm looking at the material right here and it's clearly a weather balloon. It reminds me of a few good men, right? When uh, when Colonel Jessup ordered, they says he ordered the transfer of Santiago, but then his clothes were still in his locker. Like bullshit, Colonel Jessup. Don't lie to me. I want the truth, and I can't handle it. That's right. We really are going back to the nineties. <laughs> Ramey assured the public that the flight to Wright Air Base was canceled. It was all a simple mistake. Nothing to see here, folks. Marcel, meanwhile, returned to Roswell that afternoon, dejected and humiliated. Back at RAAF, the base was buzzing with activity. Marcel marched into Cabot's office and asked the man what was going on. What was that about a weather balloon? What happened while he was away? And here's an expert, uh, an excerpt from, uh, here is an excerpt from Witness to Roswell on how that conversation went. Okay, this is me being Jesse Marcel. And I'll play Sheridan Cavett. <clears throat> I want to see the report of what happened here while I was in Fort Worth. What report? I don't know what you're talking about. I outrank you. Sorry, I take my orders from Washington. If you don't like it, you can take it up with them. 
Don't give me that laissez-faire attitude. You know what I'm talking about. What happened? I can't hear you. Marcel was ordered by Colonel Blanchard to no longer discuss the flying disc. He would return to his wife and son that night and tell them that they, too, could never talk about what they'd seen on their kitchen floor. In fact, Marcel would stay silent on the matter for three more decades. And that must have killed him, man. Just sidebar issue here, a little funny anecdote that comes up. Because Cavett and, and Marcel were neighbors. Yeah. And apparently, just yeah. after, even after that conversation, even after he was ordered not to, uh, Jesse Jr., I believe, tells this story that Cavett came over to Marcel's house and they were playing bridge with their wives. And Jesse and Cavett, or Jesse and Sheridan, or Marcel and Cavett, however you want to call them, uh, were in the kitchen with another piece of debris that they hadn't turned over, and they were trying to melt it on the stovetop and couldn't get it to melt. So these guys were still fascinated by whatever it was that they found. Absolutely. And and the wives were playing bridge, and they're like, hey, uh, we're trying to play a game here. And the two men decided we probably shouldn't have this anyway. They went outside, and when they came back, the debris was gone, and Jesse Jr. never found out whatever happened to it. That's exactly right. I mean, politics aside, this is when probably two friends, two really intelligent guys, were just trying to figure out what the hell this material was and where it came from. Right. And And on the record, they probably had a lively debate. Well, as a matter of fact, I'm not so sure. I think once that week was done, they they ran, and I think once everyone was kind of like scared into being shutting up about it, they did shut up. Dennis Balthazar, that guy who did the Roswell tour that I went on, he showed us the Cabot House and the Sheridan House, um, and it sounds like sometimes they would even carpool to work together, and they just they would not talk about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so I don't know. It's 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 it really seems to sound that once this week ends, that these dudes did not talk about it until yeah. they they were old and dying. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so the next day, Wednesday, July 9th, the papers reported that the RAAF had made a dumb mix up and that there was no flying saucer. Marcel's now infamous photo appeared on the front page of the Daily Courier is holding what looked like obvious tinfoil. And I want our listeners, we'll put this on the Instagram, take a look, and uh, Riley, if you can, Google Jesse Marcel photo. If you can find this picture of Marcel holding up these materials, you can see the look in his eye. He looks like a guy who just had a fast one pulled on him and knows he can't say anything about it because he's not able to. Yeah. There's just this look on his face like, you gotta be fucking kidding me. Well, he's stunned and he's pissed, and why wouldn't he be? He was just supposed to accept the fact that from now on, he was going to be known in the public eye as the dummy who couldn't tell a weather balloon from a flying saucer. Yeah, it's quite a photo. It's good. So what else? And So there's also another photo from the press conference where Ramey is holding up, um, well, not actually holding up, he's holding a piece of paper in his hand that looks like a telegram or a message, and this is something right. that ufologists have locked on to in, in the past couple decades. This is yeah. what is this? This I love this, right? So Ronald General Ronald Ramey's little staged photo op backfires. And I'll tell you why. <laughs> it's known as the Ramey memo or backfires the, like f- five decades later. Five decades <laughs> later. 
backfires. Uh, it's known as the smoking gun of evidence, Riley. Now, in Fort Worth, Texas, Fort Worth star telegram, telegram photographer, he took six photographs of General Ramey and his adjutant, Colonel Thomas DuBose, sitting with the substituted weather balloon and radar target on General Ramey's floor. Now, four of those photos show Ramey holding a teletype memo. Well, he probably never thought that one day, with computer technology, we would be able to read just what exactly was on that memo. Well, guess what? A Dr. David Rudiak, a research scientist, spent two years doing just that. Using computer imaging technology, he was able to decode what the official Air Force GAO investigation said couldn't be done. The Ramey memo reads in part... Fort Worth Army Airfield acknowledges that a disc, in quotes, is the next new find west of the cordon, and the victims of the wreck you forwarded to the team at Fort Worth, Texas. The aviators in the disc, in quotes, ship them by B-29ST, Special Transport, or C-47. Now in my ancient alien's voice, victims? Disc aviators? Shh. I think that says it all. So this uh, memo that Ramey's holding in his hand supposedly uh, acknowledges the fact that it was a disc and that there were bodies found. Yeah, victims, man. You don't describe victims in a fucking weather balloon. Or now, this is... Hello. This, this is one of those things that's a little controversial because even blown up, the memo looks very, very blurry. Okay. So... I, okay. I think, but 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 I I've seen it and it does it. I can see where they're getting the word disc and victims. I can see how they're doing it. You know what? I, David Rudiak did a whole. He has a whole website dedicated to his research and just I, look, trust me. After the two up, episodes we've done on this, I'm sure he does. Yeah, because no, you, you I'm can, about to start my own Squarespace site oh, on Roswell. Oh my god! You could tell the way this guy operated and trying to figure out what those words on that memo were. I mean, he basically, you know, he he figured out how many letters were in each word and you could see some of the letters clearly some not but then he went through the entire english alphabet and eliminated and made possibilities of what those words could be and i mean when you read that victims aviators of the in quotes disc ship i mean it's hard not to think alien bodies Sure, though. I, but victims always kind of bumps me because it's like victims. I guess they're car crash victims, right? I, yeah, well, yeah, no, yeah, exactly. This, this just terminology. Yeah. I'm looking at this now. It's pretty cool. This yeah, memo, yeah, I mean, uh, it is It is very ingenious and it is very smart for nerds, you know, a generation later to go, hey, wait a minute, what's that guy holding in his hand? And <laughs> totally. then be able to actually figure it out. Yeah. yeah. So after Ramey's press conference, news about flying saucers started to die down around the country. Most of the general public chalked flying discs up to misidentified weather balloons or other aerial phenomenon. The age of there's no such thing as UFOs began, despite proof we have today with the recent New York Times stories on the subject that our government has never stopped studying unidentified aerial threats and that some career politicians like former Senator Harry Reid have proposed as recently as this year that materials not of this earth are currently in possession of both the government and private sectors. This echoes Marcel's very statement on December 1979 when he was interviewed by Bob Pratt. 
Jesse Marcel's words, quote, It was nothing we had ever seen before. It was not an aircraft of any kind. That I'm sure of. We didn't know what it was. It was nothing made on this earth, end quote. And you know, Riley, that goes back to what Michael was just saying, what you were talking about. Didn't somebody have some of this material? I mean, it, there was so much of it. It has to be somewhere. Well, you know, perhaps this is, you know, some of these meta materials that the New York Times articles are talking about. Materials that, you know, were in possession of Linda Moulton Howe. Materials that were sent to Art Bell on his Coast to Coast radio program. Robert Bigelow had some of Robert this stuff. Robert Bigelow has some of this stuff that show these isotopic properties that don't match anything of this earth. That, that are these strange, compacted, multi-multi-layers of materials stacked on top of each other that, that, you know, technically we would just have a hard time recreating today with our current technology. So perhaps, you know, some of this stuff is still floating around. I hope so. Man. The Roswell story remained a dormant beast for three decades until UFO researchers like Stanton Friedman, William Moore, and Carl T. Flock began to search through a backlog of government documents through the Freedom of Information Act and kick the dragon awake in the late 70s. The generation that followed Marcel's weren't buying the numerous explanations from the U.S. government about what really happened at Roswell. First, it was Ramey's weather balloon. Then in 1994, the government admitted it lied back in 1947 and said what really happened was that the military was covering up Project Mogul, a high-altitude spying network trying to detect Russian nuclear tests. Then, in 1997, after demands for explanations about the supposed bodies discovered in the wreckage, the government released another explanation saying that, yes, there were bodies, but they were dummies, part of a project called Operation High Dive, where they apparently just tossed mannequins from high altitudes to see what would happen. Right. This was a real thing. The only problem... Uh, with it as an explanation, it didn't begin until 1959, 12 years after the events at Roswell. I mean, this just proves that the government is lying because you can't have four explanations. They can't all be true. And as a matter of fact, when asked how the public was supposed to accept the fact, considering a 10 plus year time difference, that the Air Force responded with a theory about as laughable as swamp gas, they stated this in reference to uh, Operation High Dive. Quote, the witnesses were unwitting victims of a mental processing affliction known as time compression, whereby recollections of past events tend to contract the time frames in which they took place as, as a person ages. End quote. So, yeah, basically the government would like you to believe that the numerous witnesses who claim to have seen alien bodies from the Roswell crash in 47 were really just remembering a chance encounter with crash test dummies in the middle of the fucking New Mexico desert. Come on! Yeah, in 1959. Yeah, 10 years later or yeah. whatever. <laughs> right. Time <Yeah>. compression. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks, government. So, Bryce, what are we supposed to make of all this talk about little bodies? Well, you know, we are going to get into that, Michael, and that is going to be saved for really our final culmination of this incredible podcasting Roswell series. We're going to cover that. In- <laughs> our, I'm going now to- <laughs> you're calling our own podcast. I'm incredible. lost on my pages, so I'm going off book. But that right. will be covered in Roswell Part 3. 
Fair enough. So there you go. Roswell part two's in the can. Next week, we are going to get into the bodies. We're going to get into a few more of the witnesses on the base um, and wrap this thing up, hopefully with, uh, you know, with an idea of what actually went down. Yeah. I mean, and hopefully Michael and I have done a good job at painting a picture that this was not a weather balloon, that there perhaps were bodies uh, of something from somewhere. In other words, you know, this is really starting to look like a physical craft from somewhere with pilots that that you know suffered in this fatal crash and with possibly leaving one of these alien entities alive. I, I, I got to say, you guys have are, you're kind of blowing my mind here, and uh, very well told, very well researched, and I I 100 believe that this was not a weather balloon. This very much sounds like a cover up. Where are you feeling at? Where are you at uh, after hearing this this part? Uh, as opposed to where you were at the end of part one. I mean, I definitely one one hundred percent believe it was a cover up. Now, before it was, well, I kind of I pretty much always believed it was a cover up, to be honest. But, um, I mean, I you've painted the picture a lot more clearly, and I would say where I'm at differently now is that the material is extremely intriguing to me, and I I. I, I want it I want it to exist somewhere in the world. I mean, if, if it really was all this was collected and it's indestructible, it's sitting somewhere in some bunker somewhere. So that's that's the key to this this whole thing, you know. And um Well it's fun. I don't know, maybe it is, maybe it is. That's what's the that New York Times article is alluding to. That would be that would really be something. I Or I still something don't... like it, you know what I mean? Yeah. It it supports the New York Times stuff that's been coming out this summer. It makes what happened in Roswell more or what, you know, ufologists hope happened in Roswell or Roswell Roswell. Uh, it makes it a little bit more plausible, right? It cor- yeah. helps corroborate these stories whether it's the same actual physical material or not. I think the thing that I've gotten to also is that this doesn't seem like it was some any in any way intentional by the military and in my mind the two options are it's some sort of extraterrestrial interdimensional craft, or they just fucked up in a big way on some kind of very secret project they were working on. Well, and we're going to float a couple of those theories at the end of next week's episode as well. Yeah. So that, but yeah, I mean, you guys, you're really, you're you're crafting the world. It's beautiful. I love it. Uh, Thanks so much. Well, uh, we hope you enjoyed this at home listeners. If you have any questions or anything uh, in response to this, uh, uh, these episodes, please give us a shout out, ask a question on Twitter at Bigfoot pod or on our Instagram at Bigfoot collectors club. Uh, Don't forget, we've got our wet, hot alien summer t-shirts up on the campfire shop. Go to we are campfire.media click shop and blast away. Uh, Riley, we've been getting, submissions for the club rice uh video yes oh my god the submissions that you guys have been coming in with are uh, like i mean i i expected great things from our audience but this is like (laughs) it's like next level truly so um please keep them coming if you're thinking about making a little clip and sending it over please do one request please film horizontal not vertical if you can it's much easier footage to work with and i forgot to mention that Uh, but yeah 
I we I mean it's we're we're making something very cool here. I've been asked. Oh, I was gonna say you should have seen the look on my friend's face the other day when I was like, oh, I have a song on iTunes. It's called uh, "Completely Absorbed <laughs> by the Strange," and it was just like like a dead deer caught in the road. He was just like, what What are you talking about? Are you serious? He didn't know if I was fucking with him, and I was like, no, just go to iTunes. It's right on there. It's my band. Yeah, Club he could not. He was just so confused. <laughs> the look was priceless. So great. Oh, that's great. Um, that's Riley, great. I've been asked if there's a deadline. I assume you want to finish this at some point. So when? I when would can like people, to. I, I'd yeah. like to wrap this up to culminate Wet Hot Alien Summer. So please try to get it in within the next week or two. I, I'm already starting to edit. So the sooner the better. Really, there's not a hard deadline, but if it's going to make it into the video, please try to send. Yeah, be later. part of strange history. Send us those videos. Is why so don't why don't we tell strange you kids get it into uh, Riley by Wednesday of next week by the time part three of Roswell drops. How's that? love it? That's great. Let's Fantastic. do it. Fantastic. Um, guys, do us a favor too while you're making videos. Please go to Apple Podcasts. Give us a five star rating. It helps get the show to more people. If you do. We will. We might read it on the air, like this one from Uncle Dicky. Hey, hey. Uh, Uncle Dicky uh, says uh, that ad make me wish I had balls to shave. So that's a, <laughs> a shout out to our current uh, uh, sponsors, Manscaped. Remember, go to manscaped.com and get twenty percent off your purchase with the code promo code bigfoot type it in uh, there get 20 percent off and free shipping this isn't and look yeah I, I know that we're doing these ads but we actually really do enjoy these products so uh we we're not gonna I, i'll tell you this as we're getting sponsorships in we're not going to sell you anything that we don't like correct so i definitely think it's worth your time especially during quarantine i know i've let myself go a little bit i'm trying to look presentable for the next uh for the next <laughs> epoch however it presents just for, itself just for yourself yeah. you know yeah just, just nice for myself nice at home clean yeah go check out manscape.com uh you won't regret it promo code bigfoot all right guys i'm so excited for part three of roswell we're gonna finally get to these aliens i yes, cannot yeah yes. uh, so until then <laughs> i gotta say good night and go get regressed motherfuckers <laughs> so aggressive Robin else that really gets me hyped up. <laughs> <laughs> uh. Bigfoot Collectors Club is produced by Riley Bray. Our theme song is Come Alone by Sun Eaters, courtesy of Lotus Pool Records. If you like the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really helps get the podcast to more listeners. To support the show, check out our Patreon page at patreon.com backslash Bigfoot Collectors Club and unlock multiple reward episodes every month. Hey, this is Eric Malinsky, host of the podcast Imaginary Worlds. Each episode, I explore different sci-fi fantasy genres, talking with filmmakers, novelists, game designers, cosplayers, comic book artists, and anyone who works in the field of make-believe. I also look at the fan experience, asking, why do we suspend our disbelief? You can subscribe to Imaginary Worlds wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, Heather Ashley here, host of the Big Mad True Crime Podcast. If you're looking for a true crime podcast with all of the details and none of the small talk, you have found your people. 
Each week, we dive deep into a new case and learn everything there is to know, from getting to know the victim and the impact their case has had on those around them, to the investigation into what happened to them and who is or might be responsible. And if the bad guy looks like he might drink whiskey by a dumpster or has the social skills of an ogre, we say it because we were all thinking it anyway. As the name suggests, we get big mad over true crime, and I would love to have you join our incredible community of listeners with big hearts and zero time for small talk. Subscribe to Big Mad True Crime anywhere you listen to podcasts and listen to new episodes every single Monday.